Hello and welcome to week two of the Reborn Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Now, as you know, we're bringing you five CEOs, a fund manager and a company chairman every week, audio and transcript, as part of our exclusive material for investors. Now with Talking Finance, we're also bringing you a concise summary of the main things you need to know each week in four key areas, politics, economics, the markets and technology. Now, politics this week is all about energy, again, with the National Energy Guarantee announced by the Prime Minister. He's seen the set and raised it an egg. One of my favourite journalists is Catherine Murphy of The Guardian, and this week I'll ask her about the politics of energy now. And energy is dominating technology as well, so we'll talk to Bruce Robertson from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis about how technology is transforming energy. And today is the 30th anniversary of the 1987 crash in Australia, so it's a good time to chat with another bloke who was around at the time, Shane Oliver of AMP Capital. And also, the economic data this week were employment numbers out yesterday, and unemployment is down to the lowest level in four years. So I'll ask Labor economics specialist, Callum Pickering, what's going on? Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. Let's start with politics this week and Catherine Murphy from The Guardian. The National Energy Guarantee seems to have almost uh, unified the Coalition Party room, apart from Tony Abbott, (laughs) who apparently wants the government to actually build a coal-fired power station. Mm -hmm. But um, do you think it will unify the Parliament? Has it got any hope of doing that? I think there is some hope, Alan, uh, although we've got a way to go with all of this. The model that's been presented to the government uh, relies or is predicated in terms of the advice from the Energy Security Board. It's predicated on uh, on state government agreement to the extent that the states have got to pass legislation that will change, alter the national uh, electricity market rules. So, I will come back to Canberra, but let's deal with hurdle number one, which is the states, because obviously they are relevant also to what happens in Canberra. So the optimal way of delivering this policy is by state agreement. And of course, we've been through a process where the states were involved in Alan Finkel's review of the of the national electricity market. They were integral and involved in that process. The process that's delivered the new NEG, as I like to call it, um, uh, the states have not been involved in that process. Uh, it was landed on them this week. A couple of them are pretty angry. Uh, Jay Weatherall is is pretty angry, based on what I've seen him saying. Daniel Andrews in Victoria is also angry. Now, whether or not that anger translates into the states standing up the Commonwealth and saying, no, look, we really don't want to do this, I think it remains to be seen, right? There, there so, was, a, just before we move off from that, I mean, there was a sense that um, the reason that the, that the government, Turnbull and Frydenberg, were moving away from the clean energy target that Finkel had proposed was that they wanted yep. something. They wanted something that would create a differentiation with the Labor Party. And, yes, that, and, yeah. that, and that they would, whatever came up, and they've got the neg, as you say, that, that it would be designed, in effect, for the Labor Party to dis- disagree with it. Well, yeah. Look, there are different. There are different. I think it's fair to say there's different motives in the government. Uh, and uh, and you know, just sort of finishing off that last point, right? The state. I'll I'll, I'll just keep it quick. 
the attitude of the state premiers, the Labor premiers particularly, whether or I think will be quite critical to determining what Labor does federally, right? Just closing off that last point. Now, in terms of your point, which is exactly right, is this, does the government want a settlement here or does it want a bit of product differentiation with Labor at the next election? Well, I think the answer to that question is different people in the government have different objectives with this policy. I think myself, based on what I've seen, um, that the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister would actually like to land this policy. I think they would. I think they would like to get it sorted. But the problem they've got is that there are people inside the coalition. Uh, you mentioned Abbott before, and he has said this publicly, but he's not the only one who thinks this. There are people inside the coalition who want energy to be little more than a stick to beat Labor with at the next election because uh, the, the coalition has, has won an election in 2013 based on campaigning against uh, against the Labor government's then carbon pricing scheme, right? So it's kind of like they there are people in the government who think they can win elections by slamming Labor on climate and energy, and there are some people in the government that, that just want that, right? Want the, want the picnic rather than the solution. So... Critical in this is how uh, Malcolm Turnbull manages those competing, um, you know, sort of pressures on him. Really, I suppose. Um, uh, I, I suppose it might come. Sorry, to, go on. Well, I was just wondering about Jay Weatherall because, I mean, obviously his Labor Party, that the the Canberra Labor Party doesn't have to go along with Jay. But I suppose um, the problem they're finding is that they really pissed him off um, over the blackouts in South Australia, um, and possibly alienated him permanently, would you would think? Well, it's, it, there's, there's a risk of that, and you're quite right. Labor federally does need whether or wants to do, but I, I can tell you that Labor federally are highly attentive to the fact that a number of states, including South Australia and Queensland, have elections uh, coming right up. Um, Queensland very shortly, we think, and... Uh, Jay Weatherall will face the voters uh, in March next year. So, no, Alan, you're 100% right. Uh, Federal Labor, you know, won't dance to Jay Weatherall's tune necessarily, but they also won't want to make life difficult for their counterparts in the States. So, you know, how this plays out, I think it's just got a way to run. Uh, my gut feeling, I don't know, it's sort of, it, it's funny really how, you know, there's there's a number of different ways this could pan out. And, and the, the critical question the Prime Minister has to answer by his own conduct, and I think the test of him, right, whether or not this is just a sort of confected solution, which is a bridge to a political argument with Labor, will be how he seeks to lead this debate. Turnbull, I mean. Um, I was at a function at the National Press Club this morning with the Australian Industry Group, and I actually asked him this question. If you, you say you want a settlement on energy policy, you say you want to land this policy... Well, why do you keep bagging Labor and the states constantly in the public domain? Why do you keep doing that? Because that doesn't look to me like you might want a settlement. What was the answer? And Turnbull's, well, Turnbull's answer to that question was, well, one has to point out the past mistakes, right, in order to make the case that we can't repeat past mistakes. We have to do something this time around. Um, look, there's some logic to that. I think there's, there's a sort of core of logic that's hard to argue with in that answer, but it doesn't address the critical point, which is, are you going to be a statesman here or are you going to blow this up in, for your own perceived electoral advantage at the next election context? Do you think he... And um, I can tell you, Alan, from, from that, the mood in the room, because a lot of business people in the room this morning, the mood in that room was solidly in favour of, for heaven's sake, get some bipartisanship, 
don't mess around, we're sick of messing around. Do you think he's uh, expecting to uh, get it through using the crossbenchers in the Senate? Uh, well, it's another option for him, of course, uh, to uh, to legislate whatever needs to be legislated using crossbench support rather than Labor's support. But uh, as you as you well know, I don't need to tell you. I mean, it, it sort of doesn't fix the problem from a business point of view and from an investment point of view. Uh, all you know, the people in the energy sector and beyond BCA, all of their stakeholder associations are saying, well, you know, by all means, you know, <laughs> you can do this a million different ways. But if we don't get bipartisanship, if we can't get policy certainty, at least for a period of time in this in this area, then, then carbon risk continues. Then we can't finance projects. We don't know what, what particular... Uh, energy generation energy generation assets we're building because we don't know what the rules are. So until we get a genuine bipartisan settlement of some type here, then I suspect the problems are going to continue. But what's the technology and the numbers behind it all? Let's ask Bruce Robertson from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Bruce, you said to me yesterday that the, the big change that's occurred is that uh, energy is now technology-based rather than commodity-based. What's the impact of that? Well, the impact is much as we felt in computers. Uh, you know, your, your computer every couple of years has basically got twice as powerful and yet it's remained pretty much at the same cost. And we are seeing that in energy. And the best example of that in recent times is in batteries, funnily enough, because battery technology um, has always been slated as coming down in cost, but everyone's always said that's sort of out there in the never-never. But I want to take an example from today, and that is the Tesla battery. The first version of the Tesla battery came out, and, uh, you know, at a price point. And essentially, the second version came out 11 months later. Now, the second version was the same price as the previous version, pretty much. It was a little, you know, just a tiny bit more expensive, but it was twice as powerful. And this is what is happening. And that advance in in small-scale battery technology was meant to take about, you know, most commentators were saying eight to 10 years, and it happened in 11 months. And this is the pace of change that we're seeing in energy storage. We're seeing the, you know, very strong paces of change and, and the cost coming down in solar in particular, and even wind, which many people thought had reached its natural limits of, 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 of um, you know, technological advance and price falling. We are still seeing large falls in the price of wind power. Do you mean the, now, um, the, do you, do you mean yeah. the cost of the turbines? No, the actual cost of delivered electricity out of the turbine yeah, is still falling, and and this this was really not ex, not not expected. Even even as as, as short time ago as, as two years ago, people thought that you know wind wind really had sort of reached limits of its technology, and the big advances were going to be seen in solar. But what we've seen is we've seen the price of wind turbines continue to come down, their efficiency continue to go up. And the combination of those two things has meant that the delivered electricity out of them is becoming much, much cheaper. And this is what I mean by by it no longer being a commodity, it's a technology. And the one thing 
we can be certain about in technology is that over time costs fall. And this is this is this this is the, the nub of the argument. So we're seeing a change from um, commodities, which over time, generally speaking, commodities rise in price over time, to a technology where costs fall over time. Now, it's expected that the price of electricity is going to remain where it is. I mean, I've read a few an- analyses of this sort that the pr- price of electricity won't come down because uh, it's based at the moment on the gas price and there's no prospect of the gas price coming down. But is what you're talking about likely to result in electricity prices actually coming down as as solar and wind and battery prices fall? Well, I think we have to go back to, uh, to, 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 to what actually is in your electricity bill. And, and this, is, this is the nub of the argument, is people are kind of missing the elephant in the room. Uh, around half your electricity bill is network costs. And if we look um, over the last 10 years, in terms of rises in costs of your bill, according to the ACCC, over 40% of that rise in, in your bill was caused by network costs. The next biggest component of the cause in rising your bill is retail costs at 26%, and power generation comes a very poor third at at 17%. So, so the big drivers in your electricity bill haven't been either the green schemes or the wholesale cost of electricity, and and this is the key point: is is that the elephants in the room, the big drivers of your bills network costs and the costs of retailing that electricity to you, they are not the costs of either generating it or the green schemes. Green schemes account for about 8% of your bill at the moment and um, 16% of the increase in your bill. So, so nowhere near the contribution of network costs or retail costs. What's your view about the impact uh, of, um, of households, solar and batteries? And, and what they're calling distributed generation. Well, this is the, this is this is one of the big problems we have is we've built an electricity system around centralised generation, and if you look at what's happening in the electricity debate, is essentially the people that gain from that, the gen tailors, the generators and retailers, they are the ones setting the agenda and the agenda is to entrench their power and their profitability and it's not to move to the new form that we will inevitably see of a distributed grid where we have um, power and storage at the place of consumption. Now, as I said, half your bill is network costs. If you can remove half your bill by having most of your power and, and uh, storage at the place of consumption, you can lower the costs in the long term. And that's the, that, that, is, that is the model that we'll, we will move to because the technology is moving there. And as I said, the one thing we know about technology is it keeps getting cheaper. That's going to be very disruptive, isn't it? It's very disruptive. And the key to, to, to electricity... Uh, the electricity grid going forward is to actually recognise that disruption and manage it because it is going to occur as night follows day. It is occurring now. 
already we're seeing the effects of um, renewable energy on the grid in terms of disrupting the existing models of um, the way we, we, we produce and consume electricity. And we have to manage that. And uh, at the moment, uh, there's little recognition that this is actually occurring and there's little recognition of the price, the, the rapidity, the, the, the pace of change in this industry is, is moving at, 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 pace, at a pace that people simply are not getting their heads around. Okay, now for the anniversary of Black Tuesday, which was the day after Black Monday on Wall Street. Now, like me, Shane Oliver of AMP Capital is old enough to have been around at the time. Well, Shane, uh, you had a piece out the other day on uh, where we are in the cycle and what's the risk of another 1987-style crash, it being the 30th anniversary of Black Monday today. But um, one statistic you had which made my eyes bug out, which was the forward PE, which is the same now as it was at the peak in September 87, 15.8. What do we make of that? Yeah, well, I must admit I was a bit surprised by that one. It's very unusual for the number to come out precisely the same. But, uh, yeah, for those people who like to look at price-to-earnings multiples, then we're exactly where we were uh, at the peak back in 1987, 30 years ago, at 15.8 on the Ford PE. Um, so that would suggest a degree of vulnerability. And likewise, when you look at the U.S. share market, the, uh, the, the Ford PE is actually higher than it was back in 1987. I guess the big difference, though, is that back then we had uh, very high inflation, very high double-digit bond yields, and so arguably um, PE should have been a lot lower, whereas in today's environment, you can argue a case for have a, having higher price-to-earnings multiples to give you a lower yield on shares simply because the rate of inflation is so much lower and bond yields are so much lower. So, <clears throat> yes, that does raise a red flag, but uh, when you look at uh, inflation and interest rates and bond yields being a lot lower, it's not, not as bad as it looks. So it is, this, it is different this time. It is different this time. I, I think the big differences to me are simply that you've got bond yields down around 2% or so, um, and that uh, means that the, um, the the yield that shares are offering, whether it's the dividend yields or the earnings yield, is actually quite attractive. Um, you also pointed out that the US has been in a very long cyclical bull market, the second longest since World War Two. Does that, in a sense raise a bigger red flag than the PE? I think there's no doubt that the very long bull market in US shares uh, does raise a risk. Because don't forget the, uh, the, the the last bear market, the GFC, ended in March 2009. So we're, we're up around eight and a half years of, uh, of a bull market here. And that does raise a risk. And likewise, you could argue that the economic expansion in the US uh, uh, starting in June 2009, is also longer than average. So there is a risk there of a recession. I guess historically, though, when you look back through time, it, it's worth noting that uh, bull markets don't die of, of old age. They tend to die of exhaustion. And uh, that, sort of, that sort of saying prompted me to go off and look at other indicators and look for whether we've got exhaustion. And at the moment, we don't seem to see that. We don't have the normal excesses in the US economy which precede recessions. Um, you know, we don't have overinvestment in housing like we did prior to the GFC. We don't have overinvestment in technology like we had prior to the tech wreck. Uh, we don't have a major inflation problem. Wages growth is still very low. 
you know, the Fed's still relatively benign and so on. So we don't have those sorts of excesses. And likewise, when you look at the uh, the share market, it's perhaps not quite as bubbly as it, uh, as it has been prior to past busts. For example, uh, prior to the uh, 87 crash, the US share market over 12 months had risen by by, uh, by well over 30%, whereas this time around it's, it's closer to 20%. So the gains have been a little bit more subdued, perhaps, than was the case prior to, to, to past crashes. doesn't mean the risk isn't there. The risk is certainly there if there's a left-field event. But um, we don't seem to have the excesses which normally precede major bear markets. So what would you think that um, investors should see as the main potential harbinger of a, of a substantial correction. I mean, I suppose corrections happen all the time, 10% or so, but, I mean, what do you think that um, would be the key harbinger of a bear market? Well, the, th- the key thing I would be looking for would be um, evidence that inflation in the US and globally is picking up substantially, and that then would set the scene for more aggressive monetary tightening. And if you look at uh, the major bear markets of the past, they've all been preceded by or associated with significant monetary tightening by central banks. We saw that in the run-up to the tech wreck. We saw that in the run-up to the GFC. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates 17 times. Every meeting they had between June 2004 and uh, July 2006, the Fed raised interest rates for a total of 17 times. So quite uh, significant monetary tightening. Um, is something to watch out for, and, and a, a sign that that was on the way would be a substantial pickup in inflation. So far, we're not seeing that, but that would be the key thing I think to watch out for um, going forward as a potential harbinger of a, of a major bear market. And you're right, you know, we could quite easily have a correction here. It's quite normal to have five, ten percent correction. Uh, in 2015-16, the Aussie share market fell 20 percent to its low in February last year. Um, but it, it, it wasn't sustained, and the market, of course, has sort of moved back up again since then. With fits and starts, of course, but nevertheless moved back up. But to get a major bear market like the GFC or anything on the scale of the 87 crash, I think would require a, a much bigger pickup in inflation than we've seen so far and monetary tightening. And the other characteristic of the market at the moment is uh, low volatility, which is, seems to be extraordinary, particularly in the United States. What do you make of that? Well, I must admit I've been a bit uh, thrown off by the low volatility uh, reading. Um, I, I would have thought it was a sign of short-term complacency, and it does fit in. It does go hand in hand with other indicators of investor sentiment, which is running at quite high levels in relation to the US, and those things have, have sort of been warnings of. A potential correction all year, um, but so far we haven't really seen much of a correction, or the, or the corrections have really just been short, sharp, two um, percent or so declines or moves to the side, and then the, the, the bull market resumes. But uh, yeah, the very low volatility does sort of uh, flash a bit of a warning sign, and just tells tells me that at some point there we'll, we'll, we will get a correction. But in the absence of more substantial fundamental economic Risks. It's hard to see it being anything more than just that a correction, i.e., five to ten percent, as opposed to something a lot more substantial. And finally, Callum Pickering, economist with the global online jobs business Indeed.com, on yesterday's employment figures from the ABS. So, Callum, the um, the labour market's pretty strong at the moment. It's been strong for a while. Did you learn anything today that you didn't know already? 
Well, I think it was really consolidation and a continuation of what we've seen over the past six or uh, so months. I mean, it really has been a remarkable um, period uh, for the labour market. We've seen, you know, close to 270,000 jobs, I think it was, created over that seven-month um, period. Um, it was just a, a good news all round. The participation rate, highest level in five years, the unemployment rate, uh, lowest level in, in four years. There really wasn't a, a bad piece of data contained in the release at all. So if, the, if, you, if we've got um, rising participation and falling unemployment rate, that's a pretty good double, isn't it? Absolutely. That's exactly what you like to see um, because in, in previous years, I mean, we have had, we have seen the unemployment rate had picked up a little bit, participation had been a little bit weak. We've seen that reverse. Um, that's always a good sign um, for the Australian economy. Uh, it usually leads to an increase in um, domestic demand, which um, pushes expenditure higher and and over time just does, you know, it's very good news for the economy. It's a bit hard to, um, uh, to square off low uh, unemployment rate, strong employment with um, with low wage growth and low consumer confidence. I mean, have you got any idea how that can be um, reconciled? Well, typically when the unemployment rate is falling, you usually do see a pickup in consumer sentiment. That's not the case this time, and it certainly appears to be related to uh, low wage growth and also um, high levels of household debt. Uh, wage growth remains at a very low level. It's still at its lowest level in around 20 years or so, and there's been no sign so far that it's going to pick up. Part of the reason why that's the case is that uh, there does remain still a, a high level of slack in the labour market. The unemployment rate might be low, but the, the underemployment rate, for example, remains quite high. There's still a lot of people looking uh, for a job out there, and that means that when it comes time uh, for employers to negotiate contracts, they still have... Uh, the bargaining power there. So I anticipate that wage growth is likely to remain fairly weak over the next year or two, but hopefully some of these trends that we're beginning to see with regards to employment growth begins to have an impact on wages going forward. But underemployment is falling now as well, isn't it? Um, it has come off a little bit, but it's still quite high by historical standards. So um, I would anticipate it probably take a, a good couple of years before uh, the rate of underemployment comes down to, to levels that, say, the Reserve Bank would be comfortable with, for example. Happy birthday, Tom Petty, who would have been 67 today, except that he tragically died 18 days ago. Here's my favourite Tom Petty song, Free Fallen. I'm a bad boy Cause I don't even miss her I'm a bad boy For breaking her heart That's it for Talking Finance. You can share all your thoughts about it by emailing hello at theconstantinvestor.com. Love you to do that. I'm Alan Kohler. Do have a constant week.